Welcome to episode 225 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know what time it is. It's We're bookcast. back into Bookcast. Oh, That's yeah. right. And we are continuing on in our reading and dialoguing about David Murray's book, Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. And on this episode, we're going to talk about something that I never thought you and I would talk about on this podcast, and that is, we're going to talk about sleep. Yeah, it's uh, an eye-opening chapter, and it should lead you to close your eyes a little bit more. (laughs) Bazinga. (laughs) That almost sounded prepared. That was so good. Right on point. And we're going to bury the lead a little bit because before we get to marrying together sleep and theology and how that, of all things, impacts what it means to reset and to live this grace-paced life, it's definitely time to get out for some affirmations and denials. And it occurred to me recently that if people have started to listen to us with any kind of recency, they might be unfamiliar with this whole affirmations and denials thing. And I wanted to say, we're just kind of standing in this great tradition in the Reformed faith of bringing things forward to people that we affirm with and we deny against. It's more than just a recommendation. It's right. this kind of great world of saying, here's something that's over or undervalued. Here's something that I believe that needs to be represented in a more substantial way. So with that said, what do you feel like today? Do we go negative first or do we go positive? Why don't you start with your denials? Yeah, you're flipping this up on me. I appreciate that. So I'm going to double down all of my affirmations or my affirmation and denial this week are kind of like doubling down. So I'm I'm cheating a little bit, but I'm going to, for my denial, I'm going to deny against more improper expectations when it comes to things of finance. We spoke a little bit last week about all the things that are happening in financial markets, especially around GameStop and the world suddenly was interested in all these things. And that was in some ways a great joy for me because I got to talk about this stuff with people who normally don't have an interest. But one of those things I've just been spending some time thinking about this week is that there's so many applications right now that allow people to trade. This is big idea of democratizing trade so that you can go with low cost and buy stocks. And who is like the, what's the chief like application right now? Like everybody's talking about. Well, everybody's talking about Robinhood. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was thinking about this. I think that some people have maybe just some improper expectations about Robinhood. I want to set that record straight with this denial. And that is Robinhood is a broker dealer. So in other words, it just stand in between people who like us, let's say, want to allocate our savings and buy some stock and somebody else who's willing to help facilitate that trade and actually make the purchase. And this is a Silicon Valley company. So they're not like a bank. They're not necessarily a financial institution. It's a place where consumers come for free because they receive this service of being able to buy and sell stock. But Because of that, what it means is just like Facebook, and we've talked about Facebook, how if you can't find the product, it means that you are the product. The same is true with Robinhood. So my denial is basically not against Robinhood because I think that our lives are made better because of these services, but it also means there's like a compromise and there's some profoundness behind what's going on here. So in other words, 
When you trade on Robinhood, they make their money from what's called order flow. That is like routing your trade to somebody who will facilitate it for you. And in the course of the last several weeks, Robinhood has made like $600 million in just routing these trades because stocks became suddenly so much more popular. So it's basically the Facebook of finance. And I'm not denying against that philosophy, but just we should go in with eyes wide open. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything has a purpose uh, and understanding what the purpose of a given service actually is helps you to know how and when if you are going to use it. So Facebook as a company exists to sell advertising as its primary focus. And the way it does that is by attracting users who then are the targets of that advertising. And I don't know much about Robinhood, so I'm not going to say anything more, but that there's something similar to that going on with other services. So knowing that going into it doesn't mean don't use the product. It doesn't mean that the product exactly. is somehow necessarily evil or self-interested. I mean, all, all products, all, all businesses are self-interested by nature, but it just you have to have your eyes open when you go into it. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. You're actually right. That feeling of, well, this feels kind of like I might be part of what they're selling. That's actually correct. That is the feeling. But you just have to say, okay, I understand that. And I'm still willing to engage. Or it gives you pause and you say, you know what? I don't want to subscribe under those that auspice, so I'm going to go to some other... Uh, lots of places do this, honestly. It's, right. But it's just, whenever you get something for free, I mean, we all work for money, presumably. And right. you would feel upset if somebody was like, well, I should just get what you do for free. Right. So if you're getting something for free, it's because money is being made elsewhere, and it's likely that you are the product. It's yep. okay. It's yep. just the world we live in, right? It's true. And if you don't like it, then don't do it. Don't be part of it. It's yeah, increasingly more difficult to do that, but um, it's certainly possible. Yeah. In this case, there are definitely alternatives. If you kind of feel like that's not really my jam, I, I don't like that kind of thing. There's still ways around it. But in many ways, it gives everybody access to things that they wouldn't have before. And again, at a very low cost. Yeah. It's just the matter of the financial cost is being transferred to something that's non-financial, but that's okay. If you're, again, totally chill with that. And I'm not, I'm totally agnostic to this. I love for people to be involved in this kind of thing. Think about how we can be better stewards of our money. It's just, there was a lot of like unfair and weird expectations right. about what Robinhood was, but it was also because the system, like I said before, it's plumbing. And so the plumbing got clogged. And then a lot of people said, well, Robinhood is evil. And really that's definitely not what's going on here. Yeah. I think one of the things that contributes to some of this is that these companies do often in order to increase their stocks. And I don't mean like stock in terms of like the stock market, but thinking about the users as the product in order to increase the stock on their shelves that they can then turn around and sell to whoever their actual customer is. They do sometimes present to the product being us uh, some sort of philosophy or mission statement or something that is not right. not necessarily a lie, but is not necessarily their actual core mission. So Facebook Facebook presents itself as though its uh, its mission is to connect people across the world, and that's true only insofar as that serves to then increase the the stock on their shelf that they can then turn around and sell to advertisers. And I know Robin Hood, uh, naming it Robin Hood was the first kind of branding thing that makes it seem like there's some sort of altruistic thing going on. Um, the whole idea of like democratizing, putting the hands in the power of the people, like that's, that's not really the goal. Um, and the, those ways of thinking and talking about things are there to make people want to use it because they have to have people in order to sell that product to their actual customers. So again, it just, we need to go into these kinds of things with our eyes open and understand, you know, we, we are 
quote unquote, paying something to get whatever benefit it is that that's right. just how the world works. That's how an exchange works. Um, so we need to just count the costs and understand uh, whether it's worth it to us or not. If it's not, then don't participate. If it is, then don't complain about it when you participate. So I, Was I'm, that a pun? I'm on board with you there. Was that a pun? You did exchange like financial exchange? I, it wasn't. I mean, yes, it was. It was. I'm super clever. I'm super punny. I belong on distilling theology with all it my It was puns. well played. Listen, I like that we're kind of moving from the denials to the affirmations. So continue us on. What are you denying against? So I have a little bit of a confession to make. This is a, a sensitive topic for me. Um, so last week you made a recommendation about some music. And <laughs> okay. I very much poo-pooed your recommendation. And... Uh, uh, no, just, I don't think that's fair entirely. I don't think I would yeah, say. Poo-poo'd I mean, I it. flat out said I wasn't gonna wasn't gonna check it out. So uh, I I did, and I gotta say, man, Slick Shoes is a rocking band. Like that that album is really good. Um, I think I might have misunderstood. Maybe like the the connotation of punk rock was like a different kind of music in my head because uh, it it felt very reminiscent of like Fall Out Boy or Panic at the Disco or something along those lines, which those are both, I mean, I don't love everything they do because some of their stuff can be a little bit overly sexual or overly, you know, too much swearing and stuff. But that style of music is actually something I really enjoy. So I'm going to deny my own lack of being open to your recommendations. (laughs) That's uh, kind of you, brother. (laughs) And uh, and reaffirm uh, as part of my denial, your recommendation from last week, which was the newest album by Slick Shoes, which I think was called, was it uh, Frequency and Rotation? That's correct. Yeah. So check it out. I mean, it's it's just good. It's good, high energy for the most part music. Um, but yeah, it's very melodic. It was. It's. I mean, I don't listen to a lot of music, so I'll take your word for how innovative it is. But uh, it was. It was good. So yeah, that's it, my denial is, is my is. lack of openness to new music. <laughs> well, that's unexpected. You made me nervous when we started that whole. Yeah, out. I wasn't sure where that was going to go, but I I appreciate that. That's very uh, kind of you and big of you as well. So what about you? What are you affirming this week, Jesse? I am affirming with the fact that, uh, again, I'm doubling down. Everybody get ready. You're about to hear another food-related recommendation that I, in this case, I know I've already given. Oh, man. And I'm totally doing the follow-up. So some listeners may remember, I think it was like three episodes ago now, I tried to introduce this little segment called Kitchen Corner. Okay. Yeah, it took as well as that, basically. <laughs> we, we only talked about it that one time. And it was because I had just jumped in this experimentation of making my own sauerkraut. Oh, is so it ready? So following up, I'm a, yes. Well, so here's the thing. I've made two batches since then. Oh, and man. I realized I never updated everybody. But then more than that, this is like an affirmation wrapped in layers. It's like onion affirmation. Because one, I'm affirming with how much food teaches us about God. Because... I've been making the sauerkraut and by making, all I mean is I found some amazing resources, purchased a book and basically you take cabbage, you basically just beat it up so that it produces all of the water, releases all the water that's in it. You jam it in a jar and you just let it sit. And here's the beautiful thing. God takes the cabbage and he makes sauerkraut. It's just that easy. (laughs) And in some ways that's like, actually in every way, that's a super amazing and beautiful thing. And What's funny is uh, a couple nights this week when my wife and I have been enjoying said sauerkraut and as we prayed before our meal, we've just been thanking for God's provision. I've had the unique opportunity to, to thank God for literally making the sauerkraut. Of course, like we know that he makes all food for us, that he provides every means of which we take advantage. 
And yet in this case, it was just so wonderful to be like, I just jammed it in a jar. And (laughs) in that jar, there was this cacophony of praise and worship that God orchestrated on his own, where he turned what was cabbage and made it sauerkraut. And I really was moved by this. And so I just want to affirm with the fact that everybody should try this. And then the, the slightly second part of this is there is a lovely sister who has actually emailed us twice now. And she emailed about the, the kitchen corner segment, the first, who's the only other person to use the actual <laughs> language. So I'll take that. So sister Anne Marie, uh, who is a dietitian, and I would like to elect her as the official dietitian of the Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood podcast, if that's okay with you. And uh, so she affirmed some things. She sent me some wonderful information about where to go to find more resources on how food science works, which is super cool. Like food science is proof that God exists. But beyond that, one of the things I want to pass along that she wrote in this email that I think is super helpful is she said that there is a misconception regarding fermented foods. And if a food has been canned, there's no bacteria in it. In fact, of course, that's kind of the whole point, if you think about it, of canning something. So you need to look for stuff with live cultures or better yet, just make it at home. So I want to affirm her right, reaching out to us and writing us twice now about this. And I really, uh, listen, people, I'm like all in on this now. And I'm getting funky. So I have right now on my counter a ball jar filled with sweet potatoes and jalapeno peppers that's been like fermenting or just chilling for like almost three weeks now. Wow. Who knows what that's going to taste like, but it's going to be amazing because God did it. That's crazy. So what you're saying is that the sauerkraut doesn't have to do anything. It just has to rest <laughs> in the jar and then receive what's happening to it. I had a feeling that you were going to, you were picking up exactly what I was throwing down <laughs> and I love every part of this. Honestly, as I was preparing for this affirmation in my mind, I thought about the wedding in Cana and I thought, what a brilliant, once again, example of how, when we talk about salvation of God's transformation and of regeneration specifically, that this is something that God does where he takes what is established, but he transforms it in such a way that it is absolutely something new. And yet at the same time, there's the sense in which, of course, it was what was it was what it was created to be originally, and so I see that in the water being turned into wine, and we see that in this beautiful, you know, expression of sauerkraut. Also, I know not everybody is down with the kraut, and that should be a bumper sticker right there. Down with the kraut? Are you? <laughs> Sounds like a good name for a punk band. Actually, yeah. Listen, the the growth that you've had this week is amazing. So. <laughs> Um, I agree. And the, but the beautiful thing is like doing it at home is, um, my wife, I would say is not like a huge sauerkraut person, but like when you throw stuff in a jar and just like God do his thing, you kind of at least decide when to stop that process. And so like a lot of what we've had, it just tastes more pickled. It's like a right. delicious relish or like something to throw on sandwiches or I, I, I'll betray a little bit when I move to where I live now in this particular area, this, this culture has a particular meal that they eat. So when I first moved here, I remember somebody saying to me after the turn of the new year, they said, did you have pork and sauerkraut on New Year's Day? And I was like, "Uh, that's a weird question. Like, did you have pancakes on Wednesday with orange juice? Like, (laughs) I, I, I don't understand why you're being really specific with the day in which I eat stuff. And so in, in the culture in which I live in this weird part of the United States, like sauerkraut is a big deal because of like the Pennsylvania Dutch influence. So I'm kind of like, 
I want to say like a local hero now. Cause like now it could be like, I'm producing it myself <laughs> in my own kitchen, but I, it's really, I cannot, I really cannot underemphasize to everybody or overemphasize, I guess how easy this is because God does all the work. And then you could just finish that with like salvation, justification, sanctification, <laughs> <laughs> sauerkraut, sauerkraut, every Whatever wine, everything else. <laughs> Whatever you want. Do you like sauerkraut though? I don't know if you're a fan. I'm not a huge fan of sauerkraut. I, I'm, I'm, you're starting to, con- especially given my last denial here, I'm starting to think maybe I need to give it another try, but I'm just not a big fan of it. I, that, I love pickles, but that sort of like pickled flavor in other stuff, it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't sit right with me. But maybe I'll have to bring some with you next time you're here and I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do it. Like right now, I've got some turnips that are chilling too with uh, um, garlic and dill. Man. So like... It does sound good. Yeah, it's kind of like a unique uh, thing. And so I would, again, to kind of go back to uh, our lovely sister, Anne-Marie, who reached out to us. It's one of those things where I think maybe, maybe not a lot, but some people have their experience of these foods as like the can type where they're like kind of soggy Yeah, and not, these are like crunchy and fresh and delicious. It's almost like more of like a side of like pickled, whatever. Yeah. So I'm going to make some pickles too. So I'm bringing back kitchen corner. Oh man. Try to keep everybody updated on what's going on. So what about you? What are you affirming with? So I'm affirming an app. Uh, Before I affirm this, I want to give a little bit of a preface. So Jesse and I have talked about how we have this like this quest for like the one app that rules them all. Yes. And one of one of the things that I'm learning that is particular to the Apple phone ecosystem that's not as prominent in the uh, Android system is a lot more apps. Not only do you have to pay for the app itself, but a lot of times there's a subscription fee for the service, which makes sense as more and more apps start to rely on computing power that has to be housed in a cloud. There's server maintenance fees. Like all of that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. But one of the things that I'm noticing is a lot of times you have to like pay a little bit to get a decent app. And I'm starting to become okay with that. It used to just drive me nuts to have like a monthly subscription fee. And I still don't love it just because who loves to, who loves to dump money into something every month instead of just once. But that said, this is not an app that I'm currently subscribing to, but I do want to make the recommendation and it's, I've tried it on the free uh, version. I think maybe I paid for one month. I'm not sure what the subscription is, but it's called rise sleep and energy tracker. And basically what it does, it uses the native sleep tracking that's built into your Android or into your iPhone, or if you have an Apple watch into your Apple watch. And then it compares that against um, kind of the natural circadian rhythms. And what's a little bit different about this than some other sleeping tracking apps is it's actually designed to improve your sleep, not just to tell you about it. And so you can add things like, um, wearing blue light filtered glasses, for example, and it'll, it'll tell you based on your sleep habits and what time your circadian rhythms, all those things, it's going to calculate when the optimal time to start wearing those are. Or for example, you might have a a thing on there that says, put my phone away or something like that. And it's going to calculate when to do that based on 
all of the different factors that are in play. What time you woke up, how active you've been that day, what time the sun sets, all of these different factors that come into it. So it is a subscription model. And like I said, I understand why that is because there's a lot of computing power that's going on kind of in the cloud that somebody has to pay for. And the fact that they are paying, that you're paying for it, to go back to what we said earlier, the fact that you're paying for it means that this app is the product and the service is the product. Not necessarily, it doesn't, mean you're not, but probably not you being the primary product. So check it out if it works for you. Um, you know, we're going to talk about sleep and, and all sorts of stuff today because of the, the chapter in the book we are, but this is a great app. I really liked it. I just didn't think that I needed it as much as uh, it was worth. So I did a cost analysis of my own needs versus how much it costs. And I didn't think it was worth it, but you should check it out because I can see there are a lot of people out there who do have problems with sleep, who just struggle with either right. knowing how to get enough sleep or knowing what disrupts their sleep. Um, that an app like this would be really beneficial for. And it even is the kind of thing where like you could use it for a couple months to sort of build the good habits and then unsubscribe to it and, and maintain those habits now that you've learned what the right thing is or kind of fixed your sleep cycle. Um, you don't necessarily need to use it all the time. So check it out. It's called Rise. It's available. I know for sure on Apple. I'm not sure if it's available on Android. There's similar apps available on Android as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great app. It's really well put together. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's intuitive how it works and how you use it. Um, and it's it's not free, but it is. there's a nominal fee. I, I think it's probably like 3 to $5 a month is pretty typical for that kind of app. Yet again, another thing that makes me just really fall on my knees in worship of God, because what a time to be alive, right? Yeah. Like the fact that there's so many different applications or different type of technology that can help you try to understand what sleep is and what sleep is for you. And I totally am with you because we're about to talk about this. One of the things that I think people underemphasize is understanding their own sleep and also just understanding what sleep is. Like we just think about sleep sometimes as if it's like the thing you close your eyes and you just open them up when right. it's morning again. But to understand there are different types of sleep and that your body actually is made, God has made it to go through these different phases of sleep, that they're each important, that what you eat, what you drink, what you do before bed, all of this matters. This We're getting back into the psychosomatic hole. And in fact, in many ways... That's what's really interesting about what David Murray is putting forth in chapter three, what he calls Repair Bay 3, and he's titled that Rest. Now, when I jumped into this chapter, I thought, all right, here we go. Let's talk a little bit about eschatology. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about the Sabbath. And instead, he was like, let's talk about your sleep schedule yeah. and what's that like? And I was like, all right, so... This is going to be one of those cheesy kind of chapters on let's be super practical. And of course, yeah, yeah, we need to get more rest. But uh, I love what he's done here. This is a new challenge. I found that I myself was very challenged in many of the things that he was saying. How about you? Yeah, I, I thought this was a great chapter. And I thought the same thing when I read the title. And you can tell, because if you go back and listen to our last bookcast, we had an extensive discussion about sleep. And part of the reason was <laughs> I didn't realize that there was an entire chapter coming up because I assumed I assumed that this chapter was going to be about the Sabbath, um, which it, obviously there's implications for this chapter and for our, our rest as a whole uh, involving uh, the Sabbath and the fourth commandment, the, this chapter doesn't really deal with Sabbath at all. Um, so right. I, I thought that was a great chapter. And, and this, this quote really kind of sums up the whole, the whole program of the book. The, the book is intensely practical 
And it says here, yes, a grace-paced life begins with stopping and accepting the grace of sleep. And one of the things that he establishes in this chapter that I thought was so, so important is we do tend to think of sleep as a waste of time. I, th- I think, yeah. you know, I don't know if it's um, if it's entirely an American issue, but it's especially an American issue. It's, it's interesting because I think in Bovink, the, the, uh, the critical biography that uh, James Eglinton wrote, Bovink has this, um, he comes to visit America and he, he has this section where he reflects on America and American culture. And he actually points out even back in, you know, the early 1900s, he points out that Americans sort of view their busyness and their uh, never stoppingness as a badge of honor. So this isn't even all that new of a situation in uh, American culture. And it really is true that people do sort of look at, well, the, the sort of the phrase like, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead is, is like a, it's a joke, but it really isn't. And the, the, the punchline of that story is that if you have an attitude of I'll sleep when I'm dead, you're going to get to sleep sooner than you think. Um, because sleep really does have this holistic effect on every area of our life. And, you know, he cites all sorts of studies. I'm sure we'll talk about some of them, but Every study points to the fact that if you do not get enough sleep, that it will damage you in such a way that it will it will concretely shorten your life, not on the order of days or weeks, but on the order of years over the course of your life. If you consistently don't get enough sleep, you may be taking years away from your overall life expectancy. First of all, I had that same sentence highlighted, so. Maybe we should just be reading these chapters to each just other. Just read them out loud. Yeah, that would be kind of like a glorious and intimate way. Speak, speaking of what we need, what we need is we need Blake from the Distilling Theology podcast to read lullabies and record them. <laughs> He'd have those sweet, <laughs> sultry tones and you just fall right to sleep. It would just be instant. That's true. He should definitely look into that. I think you can do that, actually. Amazon, I think, still takes readers. There you, you go. apply for that job. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, so I had that same sentence highlighted because I thought, well, that's a profound statement, or at least he's making a claim. And then he actually starts just a page later under this heading of the sermon we preach in our sleep. And here's what David Murray says. I quote, few things, few things are as theological as sleep. Show me your sleep pattern and I'll show you your theology because we all preach a sermon in and by our sleep, end of quote. So when I read that, I was like, yeah, I get you, guy. All right. I understand you're trying to emphasize your point. And then he goes actually through a list of the ways in which we understand sleep or like how we actually behave with respect to the priority we give it, what that communicates. And some I read and I was like, okay, I get what that says. Like he says, for instance, I don't respect how my creator has made me. We talked about that a little bit last week as what it means for us to be contingent beings or two weeks ago. And then he says, well, I don't believe that my, my soul and my body are linked. And I'm thinking, I, but I do believe that. And I understand what you're getting. So I'm, even as a reader, I'm kind of like, yes, these are interesting points and they're all great, but they don't really apply to me. And then he gets to the last one and says this, quote, I worship idols. What I do instead of sleep shines a spotlight on my idols, whether it be late night football, surfing the internet, ministry success, or promotion, end quote. And I was like, you weasel. Yeah. <laughs> that, I was like, that exactly hits me dead on. I thought 
Anytime I throw up Twitter, even in bed, anytime I decide, well, I just want to read this one last thing, even if it's say like it's a, a spiritual book of some kind of sense, uh, what I'm basically saying is I know better. And like you said, this is more profitable than closing my eyes and trying to decompress. Yeah. Yeah. And on, on the flip side of that, you can also think about that in terms of what things would we be willing to miss out on sleep for? Right. right. If if we had a bad night of sleep and we woke up on the Lord's Day, uh, would we be willing to get up when we're tired to go join the saints in worship or would we sleep in? Uh, at the same time, do you stay up on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve until midnight uh, to watch the ball drop, which is a totally meaningless made up ceremony? Right. So so obviously, like we preface this whole thing by saying this book and a lot of the practical advice in it is law. So we have to we have to recognize and acknowledge that that the reason that this stuff feels I, when I was reading these different this quote unquote sermons that you preach with your sleep, I have to admit I kind of had the same reaction and I was kind of like, man, this is a little bit legalistic. But that's kind of right. the point is that this is supposed to be law, and then the resolution of that is that there's some sort of gospel message that comes along with it that that. It's law that we ought to sleep, but the fact of sleep and the, the grace that is given therein is is gospel in a certain sense. And and I think it's totally true is that we oftentimes, you know, it, how does the old saying go? If, if you want to see where someone's attention really is, you, you check out their their date, their day planner and their checkbook. And and he would add. And I, th I think I agree with him at this point. You also check out what what sleeping is like for them. Um because I know that there are a lot of times that I wake up in the morning feeling like I am not well rested, uh, but I get up and I, I do things like check Twitter or I do things like, um, you know, read the news or whatever it might be that I'm doing in the morning when I wake up. And I don't necessarily I don't have to get up to do those things. The world's not going to stop if I don't check Twitter in the morning or if I don't read the you know read Yahoo News or Apple News or whatever it is. The world's not going to stop. I'm not going to get fired and no one's going to die. Uh, but I am losing sleep because of it. So I think that this is a good this this sort of beginning of the chapter with a little bit of a legal tone to it is a good sort of tone setter to set you up for the rest of the chapter where he then sort of unfolds why it's beneficial for you to actually fulfill the obligation to sleep properly. And he does a really good job, I think, of making that bridge, like you're saying, because he starts with, well, let's talk about your actions and behavior and what right. that might say. And then he, I think, does a really expert job at saying, well, you as Christians, as Sunday school graduates, you know that Jesus says things like, come to me, all right. you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Or when the psalmist says that sleep is a gift that God gives to his children. So it's almost like he convicts us by saying, well, you know that the Bible talks about sleep. It right. does actually say something explicitly about the value of rest, even outside of like the kind of ex eschatological implications. And so the conviction is, well, if... What really needs to happen here is the fact that we're not prioritizing it and prioritizing is in some ways a means of law. Yet at the same time, when we do prioritize it, we find that the grace of God comes and delivers the very thing that we need. And he comes and he delivers on the promise that he, that he gives when he says that you are filled with burdens and what you actually need is rest. But it's almost, it's not as if he's saying, 
well, what you need to do is work harder at resting per se, but what you need to do is work harder at receiving the gift of God through grace, which is rest. And in this case, it's not even this idea of a thought experiment of what it means to practice the Sabbath, but what it means to let your body be in a state where it is receiving the loving kindness of God by not being active. And I think he does that in a way that's very masterful and very challenging. Yeah. I mean, this chapter is one of those ones where you start to read it and you're just, I think that the experience that you had is probably how most people are reading this, where you start off and you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Right. And then you get a few more pages in and you're like, oh yeah, I get it. I get it. And then by the time you're like, oh man, I better go take a nap right now. Because as he goes through, right, the first section of this is the consequences of a lack of sleep. And we we don't have to go through all of them, but he highlights that there are physical consequences and kind of like a subset that he uses to prove that. He calls them sporting consequences, which is just numerous studies that show that physical performance in sports declines um, commensurate with lack of sleep. He talks about intellectual consequences, which primarily have to do with like cognitive abilities, test performance, performance at work, emotional consequences and societal consequences, which are related to each other. The fact that we're just crankier when we don't like we're cranky when we don't sleep. And that that has a real a real cost in our interactions with other people. And then he talks about financial consequences, which is kind of like the practical outflow of those intellectual consequences. And then the last couple ones he talks about are moral, spiritual, and ministry consequences. And, and the fact is, um, willpower can kind of be thought of like a, a a physical resource, like like a tank of willpower, and and certain things deplete that. You know, you, you use it, and that depletes your willpower. And then also, if you don't get enough sleep, that depletes your willpower. And so if you want to live a life where you're actually able to stand up against temptation, he makes the argument, and I think it's right on, getting an appropriate amount of sleep and making sure that your mental, intellectual, and emotional, and spiritual reserves are full every single day when you wake up by getting enough sleep, that's vital to being able to stand up to the temptations that we run into in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, the, in that section of societal consequences, this almost sounded like a joke to me, but I'm going to quote him again. He says, or writes rather, question, colon, which of the Ten Commandments can you keep in your sleep? Answer, colon, <laughs> the Sixth Commandment, yeah. you shall not murder. Because as the following statistics demonstrate, getting enough sleep is an act of loving your neighbor, end quote. And that was the thing that got me started. I was like, all right. So like, because I think there's a tendency among people, well, let me just say among myself, when I read this, I was like, well, clearly you're going to connect this to spiritual means because that's your prerogative here. And by the end, I was thinking, my goodness, like not only is it just a benefit to us that God says, as your savior, I want to help you rest. But like you said, it's almost that in many ways, sleep has a spiritual significance because it gives us the fuel and that fuel is from God to continue to do his good work and to honor the commandments that he's given to us. Yeah. And one of the things that I think um, people don't realize is because sleep is so tied to our health uh, that we, but there actually is a moral obligation in God's law to mm. get an appropriate amount of sleep. And one of, one of the things I want to look at real quick, um, I'm going to scroll to it. I want to look at this in the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism because I think they it goes into more detail than the Shorter Catechism does. And I think it's important here. 
Um, and if you look at where it says the, um, the reflection on the sixth commandment, it says, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices, which tend to the unjust t- taking away of life by any of the life of any. So that's just saying like, we have to be diligent to protect and preserve life. But then it says here, and I, th- I think this is so crazy because we think about sleep, sleep science, quote unquote. And like this understanding of sleep as like a modern thing, we look at previous generations and we think like, well, they didn't think about sleep. But then it says here, uh, by the just offense there of any violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, psychic or uh, sorry, physic, which would be like medicines, sleep, labor and recreations. So all the way back in the seven in the 17th century. The Westminster divines are recognizing it's a necessary thing for us to get enough sleep. So even back then, before sleep studies and before, you know, biological assessment where they're measuring cortisol levels and, you know, hormone levels, even back then, they recognized that in order to fulfill the sixth commandment, and they weren't talking about all of the implications that it has on other people, which is what, what David Murray is kind of focusing on. If you don't get enough sleep and you crash your car on the way to work and you kill someone, you have sinned in doing that. Even though it was unintentional, you have sinned in doing that because by your lack of care for your own body, you have caused harm to another person. It's no different. I shouldn't say it's no different, but it, it's very similar. It's in the same genre of sins as drunk driving. When you, when you right. frame it this way, because when you, when you abuse your body and then that abuse results in the death or the injury of another person, you violated the sixth commandment. But even back in the 17th century, the Westminster divines are recognizing that sleep is a necessary function of our body. And that if we don't get enough sleep, it's going to hurt us. And so in order to fulfill the sixth commandment, we must get enough sleep. Just like if I starve myself to death, if I refuse to eat and I die, that is a sin. I violated the sixth commandment by essentially murdering myself by withholding food. You are also sinning against God in the same way or in a similar way. If you, if you don't get enough sleep, if you refuse to take care of your body in that way. That's what Murray does so great in this chapter. He's super sneaky. He got me in the beginning. I was kind of like, yeah, I get it. Sleep is important. By the end, I'm understanding as he writes the way in which he's emphasizing exactly what you said, that this is a spiritual and a moral obligation. And that when we forsake that obligation, we're actually being poor worshipers of God because what we're essentially saying, whether we like it or not, is that we're not completely contingent beings or that we right. can do it on our own. Or that, like you said, I've definitely thought this. In fact, this week after I read this chapter and I was processing it, I realized he's exactly right. When I analyzed my own life and I looked behind the actions to the intent that preceded them, what I found is that I thought sleep in some ways, even if it's just like 45 minutes of sleep was a waste of time. That what I benefited from in a a greater marginal sense was either studying more or reading more. Uh, But what I thought was I don't really need that much sleep or it's not really that big a deal. There was, it wasn't even just a matter of priority. It was just that I thought I knew better than God. And God says you need to rest. 
And of course, that rest spills over as an example into what he does for us spiritually. But also at the end of the day, it's just a matter of the fact that God has made us as physical beings right. who are made to work and then are made to stop working and to basically shut down and to recharge. I'm sure there's like a really good... My wife has been watching, like going back, she keeps watching all the Marvel movies. I'm not sure why this is, but she's going <laughs> back through all of them. I feel like there's like a really good Marvel representation here because of like, there's lots of like, I just, so she was just watching yesterday. This is a somewhat of a digression. The, um, what is the movie with, uh, Thanos and the glove, the, the infinity war. Yes. So Thanos I'm, and the glove. That's what, <laughs> that's like a new Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the infinity gauntlet. <laughs> I would watch that movie every single day. <laughs> but I was trying to understand. I was asking her all these questions of like, wait, where are these stones? Why are the, the stones exist? Like who is, and it's just amazing to see that even there, there's like contingency of being Yeah, that there are dominoes that fall. And when they do, they create like this cascading effect. And I guess at this point I'm completely lost as to where I was going with that, except that <laughs> I feel like there should be some kind of equivalent because I only just learned that I haven't seen any of, uh, is it WandaVision? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yes. I haven't seen any of that and I just became familiar with it because I was watching part of the movie with her and I saw that woman and that guy and I was like, oh, it's a guy. And she's like, no, he's not really a guy. Like he's Vision, <laughs> right? He's He's like an android basically. Yes. So like all the sense of like, even there, there's like contingencies of power and energy and it requires some sense of being recharged. And yeah. it's interesting that we propagate that and promulgate it in our storytelling to some degree. And it sometimes refuse to accept it in ourselves. Yeah. Just a, just a brief digression. So <laughs> all of the energy you've invested in getting into Star Wars Dude, once yeah. once this Marvel thing catches you, you are going to that's going to be gone. I love the Mandalorian, but Star Wars movies tell cannot hold a candle to what Mar what they're doing with Marvel. Just really? they just can't. No, not even close. Wow. I'm ashamed at how high my voice just went right yeah, there, but I, that's okay. It's all good. I asked a lot of questions when they went to that place that was like the is it the land of nowhere or the the land of nowhere? The, it's it's a place called nowhere <laughs> but it's it's actually k-n-o-w yes. it's so, nowhere so when i saw it on the screen i said to my wife i was like oh it's k-n and she was like yeah and it's because like, I it's, a, it. it's the head of a celestial yes yeah. see yeah we're, we we're go. the episode's gonna be just done now but isn't there kind of like an energy component to all of that? Yes. that? Like, does that tie into like what we're talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, in in uh, in Infinity War, there is an energy component. Like like there's a cost to using the Infinity Stones. It's it's not the case <laughs> where uh, they're this this source of un, unending unlimited power. There's a there's a physical cost that is associated with using them. And it usually comes at the cost of the person who uses them. And, and I, I don't want to, I'm not going to try to make some sort of bridge, except for the fact that even, even in that sort of cinematic art form, they recognize the contingency of being that you're talking mm, about. Exactly. And, and, you know, this chapter, I think, does such a good job of, of really landing that in concrete ways. And, and you know, I, I tend to think, I think of life a little bit like an, uh, like a chemistry equation, right? You have H2O on one side. Uh, and then you, you apply energy to the other side or actually it's, it's energy gets released on the other side 
and and on the other side of the equation you have h and o right or you have h and two o's and and there's an energy gain or loss to either fuse or separate those things and and in in life it's very similar right if i want to invest time and energy into producing this podcast that time and energy has to come from somewhere else for better or worse the time that i'm spending recording this episode with you and then editing it and posting it that's time that i i'm not able to do something else and Sleep is one of those things that I think we often look at and think it's almost like alchemy, right? It's this idea of getting something for nothing that I can just, I can shave off a little bit of sleep and I can use that time to do something else, but there's no cost for that. And in, in reality, there's a pretty big cost to shaving off that, that time off of your sleep schedule. And you know, everybody's sleep is a little different. Everybody needs a different amount of sleep. Um, I find that I can get by pretty well on about seven hours, seven hours and 15 minutes of sleep. If I get, if I get much more than that, I actually don't feel great. And if I get less than that, I definitely don't feel great. But I also know people that have to get eight hours of sleep or they just don't feel well. Um, I know people that have to get nine hours of sleep or they don't feel like they can function properly. So I think some of, some of this, and we'll talk about, I'm going to transition here into his sort of his remedies, but some of this is figuring out what works for you and what things can help you. Things like an app on your phone that helps you understand your own personal sleep cycles, things like um, reminders or or literature that helps you understand what happens in your brain when you, you know, you lay in bed with your iPhone and you watch videos, which is something I do every night and you know it's not great for me. Um, things like that are important for us because they are common grace knowledge blessings that God has given right. people they've given he's given humanity this knowledge through the exploration of his created world to be able to sort of comprehend and understand these things um so i think we it would be would be wise for us it would behoove us for us all to look at those things a little bit more seriously let's conclude then our conversation with what he talks about by way of remedies because i, I think you're right he does a really good job of He's sensitive to the fact that sleep is one of those things where for many people, especially in the West, it is disruptive and it could be disrupted for many different yeah. reasons. Some of them are reasons because we don't do a good job of creating a rhythm that precedes our going to bed. And sometimes there is something physical that's preventing us. And so he is, I think, equally emphasizing the fact that we ought to explore remedies that help us create rhythms and equally supportive of sometimes seeking kind of the medical intervention that would be necessary. And uh, since I read this this week, I've been trying some of what he talked about because I don't have really good, I don't have a, do you have like a whole sleep? You probably do actually, because I think you're more disciplined than I am when it comes to sleep. Do you have like a whole rhythm that you employ or like a loose rhythm when um, it comes to like your bedtime routine? You yeah. don't have to be like, yeah, more like or super less. weird. You yeah. You have to be like <laughs> right around, uh, right around eight o'clock is when my bedtime routine starts to kick off. Cause I try to, I try to be in bed and starting to fall asleep by about nine o'clock. And so around eight o'clock, um, whatever I'm doing stops. So if, I, if I'm watching TV, I shut it off. If I'm playing a video game or if I'm reading a book, I, t- I tend to shut that off. Um, I usually go down, I wash the dishes, um, and I clean up a little bit. And then I brush my teeth. And then by the time all of that's done, I have to take the dog out. I mean, there's a whole list of things. But what I find is, is 
if if for some reason there's a night where like I don't take the dog out because she already went somewhere earlier or whatever, and I'm, I just don't have to take her out, I actually find that my night is disrupted. So sometimes I, I try to take the dog out even if I know she doesn't have to go. Um, and then usually I lay in bed for a little while and I, I try to um, read a little bit, something a little bit lighter that's not going to get my mind going. I'm not going to start like... It's not going to... Um, I'm not, I'm not trying to shut my brain down, but I'm also not trying to ramp it up. And so selecting what you're trying to read at night, uh, like Turretin is not great bedtime reading for me because it gets my brain going rather than starting to help it to wind down. Um, and then, you know, this isn't a great habit, but it's something that that we've uh, my wife and I have always done before bedtime is we we watch some videos and they're just dumb videos. Things like fail army videos where it's just like people <laughs> like people falling over and just like kind of like mindless entertainment because it's not something you have to think about. Uh, it gets right. us laughing, which gets some endorphins going. Um, and, and it's just something that helps us kind of like detach from whatever it is. It helps to sort of shut off your thought processes a little bit because it's something you don't have to think about. So, but I think everybody's bedtime routine is going to be a little bit different. I don't think there's any one size fits all bedtime routine that everybody is going to have to follow. But for me having, it's almost like a ritual, right? And it's, it's a way that signals to your mind that it is time to shut down. I think we don't realize how much we are creatures of habit. And for example, it's funny. I talk about this with my dog is if she hears a noise at night, there is nothing that is going to get her to settle down until I take her outside to sniff around. Once I've taken her outside and sniff her sniff around, she settles down almost immediately. So, so even, even if she never finds anything, that act of her going outside in the dark and then coming back in kind of tricks her into remembering it's bedtime. And, and, although human brains are different than animal brains and our, we have a, there's a spiritual component at the end of the day, like we're also, we're also animals in a sense, we're, we're physical creatures. And so some of those things carry over. So I think setting a good bedtime routine is really, really helpful. I think you're right, of course. And that's in keeping with what David Murray says. And I'll quote from his section on humility. He says, quote, by sleeping, we rel- we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God actually doesn't need us. Yeah. When we close our eyes each night, we are saying, I don't run the world or the church or even my own little life, end quote. And I think that's exactly the point is whatever rhythm we need to get into a place where we say, God, this sleep that you've commanded me to undertake is for my good and for your glory. It's as serious as anything else that I can do for you. And it's the way, in fact, that you created me to be. And all I can do is speak to my own life. I've always had this sense that I know better that, especially because right now I'm working toward a lot of different things. And some of that means trying to spend as much time as possible, memorizing things, understanding things, studying things that I think the most productive I can be is when I apply my own mental efforts to learning something. And if I need to take 45 more minutes to do that, I want to do that because that's going to set me up for tomorrow and the next day after that. And what I think David Murray is challenging us to understand is that, is it possible that the most productive thing you can do is actually put away everything else and go to sleep, trusting and entrusting to your savior that not only does he know what's best for you, but that he will take the little work that you've already done in faithfulness and obedience to him. And he will apply it in a greater way through sleep in a way that's far more profound and far more efficacious 
than if you had stayed up a little bit later to do the thing that you think is going to actually achieve the end that you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, lastly, I want to talk a little bit about anxiety with sleep too, because there was a period in my life where I just, every night I would stay up thinking about, you know, the bills that I had. Um, you know, there was a time where, uh, we, we weren't making very much money. We were both in kind of entry level positions and we had just come out of seminary. And so we had student debt that, that all of a sudden the, the student loan payments are coming in and we just didn't, you know, you don't want to just like put those off. I mean, there are mechanisms to defer them until you're able to make a little bit more money, but you don't want to do that. And so I remember there were times that I would just lay up at night thinking about it. And I think one of the things he points out is that there is a faith component to this. It's yes. not just the humility of, God doesn't need me. Although that's a good, I think that's a good lesson for us. Um, you know, if I, if I, um, fall asleep and, and I think that, well, the whole world is going to stop spinning because I'm not the one I, I, I'm not holding it up. Well, that's just supreme arrogance, right? I'm not the one that upholds the world by the word of my power, right? That's not me, right? I, I am upheld by the word of God's power. And if I fall asleep or not, Someday I'm going to die and the world's going to go on without me. So I certainly can survive for eight to nine hours while I sleep and get, get good rest. But even more than that, there's an element that trusting God in all things makes for really good sleep. And yes. so the things that I found helpful when I was facing anxiety and that anxiety was keeping me from sleeping um, was just prayer. Just, just spending time praying. And it's funny because you're, you're taught like your whole Christian life that falling asleep during prayer is like the worst thing you can possibly do, which, which I guess, yeah, there are contexts where like falling asleep during prayer is not, not the best idea, but falling asleep while you're praying at night is like the best, it's like the best experience. Like there isn't a better feeling than waking up and realizing that like the last memory you had the night before was spending time with your heavenly father. So I think we would all do well to sort of, to remember that praying and, and trusting God is good for our spirits. But in this case, it's also good for our bodies because it helps us to sleep. It helps us to not have anxiety. And the other thing that I found really helpful is, um, it's a technique called breath focus, which is common in, in like mindfulness circles, but it's, it's very simple. You just count the exhales, you, you count the exhales. And what it does is all of the other things in your brain that are looping, that are keeping you from falling asleep, all of those things get disrupted. It's kind of like, um, the, the mechanics of a hiccup are interesting they don't really understand exactly how hiccups work, but their best guess is that there's some sort of, um, there's some sort of sympathetic nerve system thing that's going, going haywire. And so your diaphragm is spasming in this sympathetic nerve system, like uh, misfire. And the reason that holding your breath does that is because when you hold your breath, your sympathetic nerve system almost like reboots to try to figure out what's going on and how to get you breath again. So you're, you're basically like pushing hard reset on your sympathetic nerve system when you hold your breath. And that's why it disrupts the hiccups is because it, it kind of like it kind of undoes that circuit misfire. Well, what I found is that this breath focus technique or just even just counting. This is why counting sheep works, why they say count sheep, because what it does is it disrupts that looping cycle that's going on in your anxious brain. And so it's an opportunity for you to just count and you count slowly and steadily. And all of a sudden thinking and trying to calculate, this is what was happening to me is I would lay up at night and I would think, all right, I've got X, X dollars of debt and we make Y dollars per month and, and Y 
uh, x divided by 12 is greater than y times 12. So what are we going to do? And so I'd be sitting in my head trying to do that math and calculate it in my head. And I found that just taking time to count and focus and pray disrupts your brain's ability to do that. And it really does work wonders. So I think, you know, there's all sorts of sort of tricks and gimmicks and you have to sort of find what works for you when you're dealing with sleep struggles. But then I also do want to highlight, he does call out and I think it's important that he does. Seeing a sleep specialist or a sleep a sleep therapist, right? There are physical things that can disrupt your sleep, and there are emotional and mental things that can disrupt your sleep. And sometimes seeing a, a sleep therapist or a sleep physician is something that's necessary. And I think there might be some shame in people's minds about that kind of thing because it's kind of like, well, if I can't even do something as simple as sleep, then am I? You know, what's wrong with me? Well, it's never that simple. It's never that easy. And I, I, there is sometimes this perception in Christian circles, but I think in reform circles, especially, unfortunately, that like counseling services or even medical services are somehow shameful, like they represent a lack of trust. And I just don't I just don't think that's the case. So I, I want to say loud and clear that if you're experiencing sleep issues or any other medical or psychosocial issues, there is no shame in seeking professional counseling help, even if, even if GASP, even if it's not a neuthetic counselor, right? There's no shame in seeking professional assistance for someone who's been trained in order to help people through these kinds of physical right and on. emotional things. Because I think we all need some help sometimes. And yes, we should go to Jesus first. And that the most common way that we go to Jesus uh, is through the ministry of the church, right? Speak to your pastor about it if you're having issues. But there's also no reason that we can't turn to the common grace knowledge that is is coming to us through the study of God's second book of nature, right? We talked about that. Um, there's no reason we can't look to that. So, so I think this is a great chapter. I think it's something that immediately, and I love that he put this first because you can do all sorts of stuff to try to get your, get your life back in order and back in balance. But unless you can get the basic rhythms of awake and asleep, unless you can get that worked out, all the other stuff is probably not going to do all that much good for you because this is such a central issue. He has a, he has a quote. It's real close to that one that we read earlier. Um, but he says, uh, he says here, nothing impacts our lives more than doing it. And he's talking about sleep. So it's, it's huge. It's a huge part of our life just in terms of time. It's a huge part of our life in terms of the impact it has on us. And I think that as Christians, we ought to think about it a little bit more. We ought to think about whether we're doing it well, whether we're getting enough of it, whether we are focusing on it and allowing it to be as significant as it really is. And if you're looking for maybe a complimentary source to provide you with more perspective on the importance of sleep, I'm going to recommend something I did many, many episodes ago, and that is a book by a gentleman named Matthew Walker, who is a neuroscientist and sleep expert. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams, not about Joseph, but this is the kind of thing that will fill you with a holy dread for what it means to sleep properly and why it should have importance in our life. And what Matthew Walker cannot properly articulate is that he focuses on all of these, this mental well-being and this physical well-being and emotional well-being. The only thing he misses is what David Murray emphasizes, which is that sleep also has a component that contributes to our spiritual well-being. 
And so this is definitely worth looking at. If you want a little bit more evidence, if you want to get a sense for why exactly we sleep, because this is decidedly not a Christian. And basically where he ends up with is that, wow, sleep is like the most important thing that we do. And here is God saying, like cut to God being like, yeah, like that's the way that I created these contingent beings whom I love to worship me and to rely on me. And sleep is in some ways like the smallest, the lowest common denominator that shows God that we trust him, that we love him, that we are in fact reliant upon him for all things, including our very physical energies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to wrap it out. Um, so we're, we're still really early in this series. You can still pick up the book. Uh, it's easy to find. You can get it on uh, Kindle or a paper copy. Um, and we still are really right at the beginning of it. So we're going to do three episodes of book casts and then an episode of a grab bag topic of some sort. Uh, and then we'll go back to book cast. And we're going to be doing this for the next couple months. And when we get done with the series, we're going to do a giveaway. And as we've said a couple times now, our hope is that you are going to purchase this book now. You're going to work your way through it with us through this series. And then when you win that, uh, that copy that Crossway is generously providing, that you give that to somebody that you know in your life that needs it. Because I think all of us know somebody that comes into work on Monday and, and just talks about how they just didn't sleep. They, they, they spent the whole weekend up either at someone who just parties all the time or at someone, you know, that is, is in this so commonly masculine reform view of I'll sleep when I'm dead. I got to read the institutes one more time. I, we all know somebody like that. We, most right. of us probably are somebody like that to, to varying degrees, but somebody in your life is going to need to read this book and understand how and, and why they need to take a step back and reset their life to avoid burnout and all of the consequences that he sets up in chapter one and two. So, so stick with us. Uh, it's, it's an easy read. It's not super difficult. And uh, you're going to have a chance to win a copy to give away at the end of the, the series here. Stay with us. Yes. I love NPR. <laughs> and let me just add that if you listen to this and thought, my goodness, I can't believe they just spent a whole hour talking about sleep. Where is the theological nuance and high level talk that I'm used to? One, let me remind you, did you really come to us for high level talk? And second, <laughs> let me say that I think that's kind of the point is that if you're thinking about this and saying, I thought this was a podcast about reformed theology. What is really more revolutionary than saying we all need to get a little bit more sleep and that sleep is something that God has designed us to do yeah. and that we worship him in our sleep when we make it a priority. Like, is there almost anything else right now in our culture that is more revolutionary than that, which says that you need to be more productive and more efficacious and spend more time doing the things you want to do and achieve more. And that, you know, even like among like politicians and entrepreneurs, they oftentimes pride themselves on how little sleep that they get. Yeah. And here we are as Christians is saying like, I want to get a solid eight hours and I'm going to devote myself to that thing because I know that God has created me to rest. That to yeah. me seems the most revolutionary thing that we can do. And it seems exactly in line with the, th I don't know like how much sleep Luther got. I feel like he probably didn't get as much sleep as he yeah. should have, but Calvin, I feel like was like, he seems like the kind of dude that'd be like into sleep. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a whole other podcast topic to talk about, but both Calvin and Luther are examples of how you have to take care of your body because yeah, both well, Calvin true. and Luther 
had all sorts of physical ailments that were the result of them abusing their body because of the sort of scholastic middle age, high medieval church understanding of, of what it means to privilege spiritual needs over physical needs. And, and that just underscores everything we're saying about this, this topic today and the series as a whole is that if we don't take care of our bodies, we are going to cut our lives short. And, and obviously God is going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish through the people he wants to accomplish them. We're not changing God's plan if we don't sleep enough and die young, or if we get enough sleep and die at 115 years old. All of that is within God's providence and sovereignty, obviously. But um, think about what could have been different had right. Calvin lived another 20 years because he didn't right. abuse his body when he was young, or if Luther had lived another 30 years because he didn't abuse his body when he was young in his monastic days. Those kinds of things are reality for us. And, you know, it's interesting because I think we do have this tendency to privilege spiritual spiritual things over physical things. And that really is just a hallmark of medieval piety, right? Right, exactly. So, so this is a great series for people to do. I think that I think that we're all going to come out of this on the other end, hopefully a little bit more balanced, a little bit more um, even keel in terms of how we manage our lives. And ultimately, the goal is to glorify God through that and, and by enabling us all to, to be a little bit more productive in the grand scheme of things by properly balancing and properly handling all of the different aspects of our lives. What are the chances that at the end of this whole series, when we've gone through the book, found this conversation, the process, this, we can somehow get David Murray to talk to us? Because what I'd like to say to him right now is, how dare you, sir? <laughs> how dare you? And yet only because I know that he's right and he's challenging me in ways that are very different than the way I'm used to thinking. Well, I don't, I don't want to make any promises, but I think you might get your chance. Oh, really? Can, oh my gosh. Now I've set myself up. Oh, you now have, gonna have set to be yourself like, up. He's, he's going to come on the, the podcast and you're going to be like, we've enjoyed your book. And I'm going to be like, first question. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> and he'll be like, I, I don't understand. Is this American humor? <laughs> and then I'll be like, follow up question. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to play that clip from the office. Number one, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> well done. I should know that I can't slip any office reference no matter how veiled past you. It's true. Well, on that light, uh, I don't know how this, this transition works, <laughs> but Jesse, until next time, get some sleep, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Oh.